Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Neffet is offering the government its recommendations as the Cabinet prepares to make a decision on reopening the country. The Taoiseach says they will take the recommendations seriously and they'll be remembering the lessons of last year. It's not going out there and I don't accept that presentation that has been made because of the fact that the economy has rebounded very significantly uh, and in a very fast way because of the reopening of society that has occurred. We'll be discussing the latest with our panel in just a moment. Also tonight, the global supply chain is spluttering and it could affect what you're able to buy this coming Christmas. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Firstly, tonight we're beginning to hear a little bit more about what Neffet has recommended to the government about the reopening of the country. Cabinet meets in the morning and we should find out by lunchtime if the rising number of cases and hospitalisations will change the government's plans. Our reporter Paul Quinn is at Government Buildings for us this evening. Paul, have you heard anything about what Neffet have said? Yeah, little bits and pieces uh, coming out tonight, Gavin. As you say, senior government ministers are meeting here at government buildings tonight. Neffet met for several hours uh, today uh, to put together their advice and to put together that letter uh, for uh, Cabinet. And of course, it probably no surprise that we know that Neffet will be seeking somewhat of a cautious approach around all of this. Senior mem members of Neffet out in the last uh, few days or the last week or so raising concerns about those rising case numbers, the hospitalisation, something that I'm, I'm sure you'll be speaking on the show in a little bit, up 45% in the last two weeks, the ICU uh, beds also. And we're hearing a lot in the last 24 hours as well about surge capacity, about uh, how many beds we have left. And I think people out there will, be, uh, will feel like it's Groundhog Day, despite the fact that the Taoiseach said earlier today that it, it certainly is not. You could see Neffet perhaps uh, look for a pause uh, for a number of weeks to see if we can perhaps get more of that uh, cohort of people who were unvaccinated, get them vaccinated. Um, I know there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of anxiety, particularly uh, among the hospitality sector tonight, speaking to uh, uh, music promoters, nightclub owners. They're very, very worried about what's going to happen on Friday. Uh, now, the Taoiseach was in Sligo uh, earlier this afternoon. We were asking him. He wasn't given uh, too much away about what decisions would be made, but he did point to the fact that the COVID certs look likely that they will continue, and I'm sure that's something as well that Neffet uh, will be advising that the, the COVID passes will continue for some time, and I think that's something that hospitality uh, nightclubs that they could get on board with if they manage to, uh, first of all, get reopened on Friday, if they can see their hours extended somewhat, and it's all around capacity issues issues as well. I'm sure so I think sectors, Paul, uh, the approach from Neffert would be very much a, uh, a lot of caution. Indeed, and I'm sure that all those sectors are desperate for a bit of certainty. When will we know for certain what exactly the government is going to sign off on? 
Yeah, so look, the sub, um, Cabinet Subcommittee meeting tonight, the Cabinet will meet uh, tomorrow morning and we should get a clear indication at around noon tomorrow, Gavin, of what exactly is or isn't uh, going to happen. Some big decisions will have to be made. As you say, a lot of uh, uh, people anxiously waiting to hear those nightclubs, those in hospitality and not forgetting the wedding couples as well, particularly around capacity and what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. So 12 noon tomorrow, we should get a better picture of what's going to happen. OK, I'm sure plenty of people will be standing by. Paul Quinn, live at Government Buildings for us this evening. Thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Let's bring in our panel. I'm joined in studio by Minister of State Jack Chambers, Labour's Duncan Smith, and by Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University, Paul Moyna. We're also joined by Skype by the INMO's General Secretary, Phil Nihay. Uh, thank you all for joining me tonight. Uh, Paul, I want to start with yourself. Um, there's a lot of speculation around what exactly is driving increased case numbers. Do you have any uh, input to offer as to why exactly cases have gone out of control? It's difficult to know for sure. I think there's a number of factors. So First of all, there's probably increased mixing, increased socialising. Um, that's probably true. I think the time of year as well. I think there's a big seasonality to this virus, the respiratory virus. These viruses tend to transmit better during the autumn and winter months, so we probably shouldn't be surprised with that. The other uncertainty is we, we haven't experienced the Delta variant over the winter months before, and we know that this variant transmits really, really well. So again, that is probably contributing to that. And then another factor, I think, are the breakthrough infections. So people, and we know from Israel, for example, people have been vaccinated five, six months after the second vaccine. Some become susceptible to infection and they're probably contributing um, as well. Because the, the official line from NEFIT is that they don't have any uh, advice yet as to the idea of, of waning uh, vaccine efficacy. But you, you seem to think that there is a documented phenomenon. I think we need to be careful there. So, so there is waning, but a waning of a certain type of immunity. So when you get the vaccine, you produce antibodies. Antibodies are produced within the first couple of weeks. And then they last in our bloodstream for about five or six months. And they're the ones to protect us from getting infected. They wane after five or six months, you become susceptible to infection again. But because you've been vaccinated, you also have cells that can produce antibodies and T cells that can go in and kill virally infected cells. That's the immunity that protects you from getting very sick. So when we talk about breakthrough infections, really very important to say that this is not, this does not mean the vaccines are failing. They're still working and they're still working especially well in terms of protecting us against serious illness and hospitalisation. You mentioned the climate and some of the ways that we're socialising. They aren't necessarily unique to Ireland. I know you can compare us to Britain and Britain's having a hard time of it as well, but we do socialise in similar ways and we have similar weather to a lot of other countries in Europe who aren't nearly having the same problems that we are. Yeah, I think it's very, it's very difficult to compare because it's multifactorial. There are many different factors. Time is an issue as well. So I think whereas we may be looking at a very severe case at the moment in terms of our cases, that may be another country in three or four weeks' time. And I think where we're faring pretty poorly now in terms of case numbers, and yes, hospitalizations are going up, but in terms of European average, we're still not doing too badly. But uh, certainly the numbers are of concern and we need to try to control them. Jack Chambers, you're the government chief whip. You'll be at the cabinet table tomorrow when these decisions are being made. First of all, do you have any insight into what NEFIT has recommended? And secondly, is the government likely to follow it to the letter irrespective of what they say? So as you know, the NEFIT met for many hours today and this evening, as Paul outlined, the, uh, the cabinet subcommittee is engaging and a meeting about what what NEFIT has said, what the recommendations might be, uh, but also looking at the overall COVID context. And we are seeing concerning trends around uh, the impact on hospitalisation ICU. I think that has to be balanced against the uh, significant progress we've made on the vaccination rollout. The fact that we've got such collective uh, protection, over 90% of people uh, of adults vaccinated now. And that, that provides a much different context, I think, when you're analysing what's possible mm. uh, over the coming weeks and months, but because we've got that protection. But we're still at that pinch point, though, where you have 93% of adults fully vaccinated and yet you still have only a handful of available ICU beds in the country. Do you have any theories of your own as to why we're in the situation we're in? 
Well, I think I think Paul outlined some some reasons and some factors. I think the there's a seasonal impact. Obviously, I think our proximity to Britain and Northern Ireland, they've had a, a, a much greater relative increase in case numbers. And um, but just to say, government will will take into account the public health advice, but also balance the uh, the huge benefit of the vaccination rollout mm-hmm. and the protection that gives, as well as looking at the other social and economic factors. We've made great progress on the reopening to date. Uh, ma- massive amount of people back at work. Uh, and we want to take a balanced approach when it comes to assessing uh, what Neffet have said uh, and, and also looking at the, again, boosters, I think, will play a key role as we go into the winter period to, to reinforce that immunity that people have gotten from their original was vaccine. It, was it wise to tell people that certain sectors would be able to open, that you'd be allowed to have full stadiums, full concert arenas and the likes on October the 22nd when you're going to be making the decision three days short that that might not be possible? Well, I think it's important to give a signal to people and to sectors about what's possible in terms of the next phase. I think giving an indefinite period of, or saying to people that there could be an indefinite period of closure uh, isn't prudent. I think people expect us to have a plan. Uh, we're, we've, had a, we've made great progress over the last number of, of, uh, of months, as I've said, when it mm. comes to vaccination. Uh, and yes, but there, are, there is... But people signal that you, people thought that they had certainty. People presumed that they were going to be able to open again fully again. You're the junior minister for sport. There's an interprovincial rugby match moved to the Aviva this Saturday because they thought they could have 50,000 plus there and now it looks like they can't. Well, that's why. But you know, we we want to make the pro. We want to make progress on the reopening all areas of our, of our economy, and that's what that's why we set out a plan. Uh, obviously, COVID. What's has, the value of the plan? Where you're going to be changing the plan three days before it's supposed to take effect? Well, co- as we know, uh, COVID is unpredictable. It's unpredictable here. It's unpredictable everywhere across the world. And um, but what the the real relative advantage that Ireland has, uh, so that we can plan and we tr- can provide certainty to people, is the huge success of the vaccination rollout. Uh, and, and we want to see progress on areas that haven't yet uh, been reopened and balancing that against the uh, public health uh, guidance and, uh, and, and latest information that's come from NEFA. Okay, let me bring in Phil Nihay from the INMO who's joining us via Skype this evening. Phil, thank you very much for joining us. Can you give us some sense of the uh, burden that your members are facing through the number of people who are in hospitals with COVID right now? Yeah, I think it's fair to say they think they're they're um, going to be facing another onslaught like um, they did last winter, except this winter and going into this winter, the hospitals are much fuller. So today, for example, we recorded 438 people on trolleys. Now, that's in the context of the HSE stating over and over again, there are 95 uh, beds available in the country, but there couldn't be when we have people on trolleys who are admitted to hospitals, but for whom there are no beds. So it's it's absolutely crucial that the uh, politicians particularly understand that our hospitals cannot cope. They cannot cope today. They won't be coping tonight and they won't be coping tomorrow. So- and it's not just ICU. Our medical and our surgical wards, they're understaffed. The, the staff on those wards are absolutely exhausted from having been, you know, working obviously in, in COVID environment for this length of time, but also they themselves are now again becoming infected. So the last figures we have that were published on Friday show us that in the month leading up to last Friday, um, 3.7% of all of the infections were among healthcare workers again. That figure is going the wrong way. And of, of that 37 26.5% were nurses. So nurses obviously are in wards close to patients and um, 92% vaccinated. And um, yet 371 were infected 
in the last uh, month that is recorded. So, so this is really worrying. So 371 of your members, or, or mostly nurses of your members, would have been contracting COVID and would be out of work. And then plus they also have close contacts who are out of work as well. And all of this at a time when hospitals are pretty much full. Well, hospitals are overcrowded. They're not full. They're overcrowded. And all last week, and we have been flagging this to the HSE for the last six weeks, our numbers that we count, and we have counted now for over a decade, we have been flagging they're going the wrong way from July. So uh, today we looked for the winter plan. There is no winter plan. So what what are we going to do when we have, um, as as just one of your panels said, the Delta variant being a, an airborne, mm. very transmittable, and uh, now within our own hospitals again during this winter we're going to have the infection um, being really part of everyday work for our members. Now, I, I think this is really important from the point of view of the exhaustion of the workforce that are dealing with the pandemic at the eye of the storm, which is within our hospitals. Nobody should take that for granted. The, the big problem we're going to have is burnout and people leaving the professions of both nursing and midwifery. We've surveyed our members. They're indicating already they cannot cope. They can't countenance another surge. So we have to be very confident that we're doing everything we can, including pulling in our private hospitals now, getting the additional support from our private hospitals right now, not next week or the week after. Okay. We're going to have over 500 people on trolleys every day this week. Our hospitals do not have any vacant beds. They are overcrowded. Uh, Phil, stay with us. I want to bring in uh, Duncan Smith, Labour Party health spokesperson. Um, Duncan, you must have concerns then from what we're hearing. It's, it's difficult not to have concerns around the state of hospitals and whether we can afford to relax any measures if it puts too much of a burden on our staff. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally what it comes down to is our health system and our hospital system. And there are many things that you can plan for in COVID, many things you can't plan for. But one thing that's been flagged early on was how understressed our acute hospital system was. So now we're in a situation where on Sunday, we only had 11 spare ICU beds. Uh, that's something that has been flagged since the very start of this pandemic. Uh, so we're talking about surge capacity. Do we have the beds? Do we have the ICU nurses? For those beds should we need to deploy them? I don't think we do. It takes 12 months to train up an, an ICU nurse. Have we been doing that? Which is an important point because people the, wonder why you can't just scale up ICU overnight yeah. because you have to have the, the, the so, personnel as well. So these are the things you can plan for that the Minister for Health and the HSE should be planning for. I know there are certain elements you know, in terms of reopening uh, and events uh, and that, but these are the practical things that people like uh, Vilni Hay and the medical union, uh, the, the health unions have been calling for since the start of this pandemic. Uh, I sat on the COVID committee uh, through the summer and early autumn of last year. All this has been brought up in terms of how understressed, how we need nurses, how we need uh, health and social care uh, okay. professionals. Uh, none of that seems to have been done. And here we are uh, on the brink of Halloween uh, uh, 2021 and we're in this situation again. And that's what's very disappointing because all this could have been planned for and budgeted for. We have an 800 million euro underspend in the HSE. 800 million underspend? That's incredible. Jack, how, how would this of all years have we managed to underspend the health budget? Well, if I can just set out what we've done around to build healthcare capacity, it's just important to say that. So we had uh, 255 critical care beds prior to COVID. It's now at 296 
uh, and it's planned to reach 321 uh, by the year end. Uh, so that is a 25% increase in critical okay. care capacity. Uh, it's important to state that factually. No, and, and, it's your, uh, and it's helpful, and, but you could and, have done a lot more if you'd spent the 800 well, million euro, well, which is apparently uh, sitting unspent. 20, well, as you know, budgetary profiles work through the year. So uh, the Minister for Health will have uh, a winter uh, winter plan, Will also is also developing... So it's over the 18th, he doesn't have one yet. Well, well no, is also developing a, a waiting list uh, task force so that we address the serious uh, wait times that many people have had that have been that have been exacerbated by COVID. There's also 850 uh, new acute beds in our hospital system, um, which is the factual position. So to say that there's been no changes isn't factually correct. We have invested. We had an unprecedented help with it last year, this year, and again next year, which is about investing in our critical care capacity. It's a lot of running to stand still, though, Jack, isn't it? Well, COVID has presented a, a huge. It's it's a it's a you know, a, a huge difficulty in that you've got uh, diagnostics and you've got a delayed diagnosis and you've got people waiting for longer because electives and other care had to be removed. Um, and, and people are obviously, mm. that, that's a big focus of the Minister for Health is to ensure we uh, develop a plan that ensures that those who are waiting uh, have, have, have outcomes. And that's why we are using, for example, a lot of elective procedures are happening in our private hospitals presently um, so that we that adds capacity okay. to our public system. Uh, let me bring back in Paul Moyna. Paul, you mentioned earlier on that there's been benefits in countries like Israel where you give people another dose six months after they've had the previous. Um, if you're heading into a winter, you'd like to think that you'd have already got the ball rolling on that. Have we missed the boat by not acting more quickly on boosters? don't think so. I think we've already initiated that process, Gavin, especially in terms of the over 80-year-olds, those uh, in long-term residential care. So in terms of boosters, I think there's certainly a need for a booster programme. I would suggest a targeted programme, maybe in older age groups, immunocompromised, maybe those who originally got the Johnson Johnson. Um, is talk of everybody over 60 potentially being offered another dose. Is that appropriate, given that there's so many people in the world? Probably, if you, if you look at the data coming from Israel, you see very good protection against serious illness for the over 70s. So that sort of age group probably does make sense. I think in terms of a mass booster programme, I'm not convinced you'd get very significant effects there in terms of protecting against illness and hospitalisation. The reason being that the vaccines are already working really, really well in that sense. I think something else really to focus on is if you look at the number of COVID patients in ICU at the moment, over 70% of them are unvaccinated. So there's the 300,000 eligible people mm. not vaccinated. I think that's something we should try to address and encourage. And I think that splits into two groups. Some mm. who've decided they will not be vaccinated. And I think that group's going to be difficult to reach. But I think there are people out there of genuine concerns and anxieties. I think it's really important to try to reach those people and say, you know, please get vaccinated. Uh, let me go back to, to Phil Hey, Phil, the, the picture that you painted a few minutes ago wasn't a very happy one. I suppose you must have some concerns, irrespective of the societal desire to get back to normal and for people to be able to have some kind of social lives, that you guys must be really quaking in your boots around there being any relaxation of the restrictions that are still there. Well, I think the first thing is we're hoping that NIAC make the right decision tonight and make a decision to offer booster vaccinations to healthcare workers. That's um, very important. And um, particularly as most of the healthcare workers were vaccinated last February um, with AstraZeneca. So that, that is a clear ask. Secondly, we hope that somebody makes a decision very fast to seek the uh, assistance of the private hospitals. There is not um, uh, anything like what was um, in place at the beginning of February and March of 2020 from the point of view of getting assistance from the private hospitals. And we need to do that because we simply cannot keep um, overcrowding our public hospitals and thinking everything is going to be grand. 
when um, Minister Chambers says the uh, ICU capacity has been increased, uh, I presume he heard the nurses from St. Vincent saying they were staffed for 14 beds, but 18 beds were open. You simply cannot provide proper and safe intensive care without nurses standing by the bedside and, and doing what they, what they do best, which is caring for patients particularly when you open a bed without the staffing numbers associated with it. The bed is no good on its own. Uh, let me let Jack answer to that. Jack, you're staffing uh, for 18 beds with enough people for 14. How does that work? Well, Phil, I've obviously outlined the, the incident of, or the, the, the impact on staff in, in St Vincent's, but uh, we are scaling up our critical care capacity and, uh, and, and that, is, that involves staffing increase as well. There are 6,000 uh, new staff in the HSE this year and a considerable number of them, of, of them are nurses, midwives, doctors. And I accept the point Phil makes around the huge toll that COVID has had on, our, on workers in our health system. And I, I agree with her around uh, Needing, we, needing to see uh, boosters for, for healthcare workers so, uh, and, and, and protecting them in, in, in their workplace. And we wait to well. hear what Nayak has to say about that. But is it wise, given the pressures the hospitals are under, you've heard Phil talking about the idea that they're not only full, they're already overcrowded. The workers are at breaking point. And even though you have lots of other factors to try and deal with and groups you need to satisfy, that you're talking about adding to their workload. Well, that's why we're, we're taking a... That's why that's an absolute consideration for government when we're making any decision on what's possible for the, over the coming period. Uh, and we have to see the profile of, uh, you know, around, as, as Paul mentioned, we have a significant number of those in our ICUs who haven't been vaccinated. Um, but we've also got to look at our, you know, if you look at 850 additional beds in our health system uh, and, and balance that against, mm. uh, and look at the profile of patients that are arriving. There's been a marginal increase in, in ICUs in the last week, a significant increase in the overall COVID burden, or I think up to 80 new patients in our hospitals on COVID. So that we have to profile that patient burden with the existing caseload and see what breakthrough infections will result in hospitalisation or, or, or ICU admission. And that's why I think boosters will play a key role, particularly for those who are vulnerable, immunocompromised, uh, and so that we, we, we need to protect our workers right. and protect our health system. Uh, uh, and that's why we'll hopefully see guidance uh, from NIAC. And I'd, I'd, okay. I'd, I'd like uh, to see that as quickly as possible. Before we let you go, Paul Moyna, uh, you were nodding your head when Phil Hay was talking about the idea of there being an urgent need for boosters for healthcare workers. I, I guess you agree with that idea? Yeah, I think there's, there's a real definite need there because as Phil has mentioned, healthcare workers are one of the first groups to get. We know that when we see this waning immunity that leaves you more susceptible to infection. That happens maybe five, six months after. So certainly that's a group I think and that of course they, they be could be vectors to infect other people in hospitals. They so. could potentially, but if you've been vaccinated, yes, you, and the viral load can be high, but you tend to clear the virus much uh, more quickly. So you're less likely to transmit for a longer period of time. Okay, uh, my thanks to the panel. We will have much more on the rising COVID cases after this short break. Don't go away. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Just to keep you up to the speed on the latest that we're hearing from government buildings with that cabinet subcommittee and COVID-19 is continuing. We are told that the NEFIT assessments, according to one source, is not too bad, that it's a little bit more optimistic than had been suggested based on some of the negative predictions about hospital numbers and the like. We're told that it still does apparently give the government some license to move forward, standing down some of the restrictions that currently exist anyway, partly on the basis of continued use of vaccine passes and other protections, which might possibly include not only the wearing of face masks, but also maybe some capacity limits in some indoor settings. If we hear any more before the end of the show, we will, of course, let you know. But in the meantime, let's get more on what we know about the rising COVID cases and some of the data behind them. We're joined by Rachel Lavin, who's a data journalist of The Business Post. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us. You've been doing a little bit of a study on the age groups that have been seeing surges in COVID cases recently. Yes, so in the last week, it seemed that the surge came on all of a sudden. But if we actually break it down by age and go back a month, we can see that cases were rising in adults gradually since about mid-September. And at the same time, kids and cases were falling. So while the top line seven-day average figure was usually between 1,200 and 1,400 cases a day, actually there were two waves going on. Children were falling, but at the same time, adults were rising from about 800 cases per day in mid-September to 1,400 last week, which is a big jump. So some people are questioning why that is. Maybe it's because adults are returning to the office. I think of about 174 outbreaks in the first week of October. I think about 88 of them, or sorry, 19, excuse me, happened in workplaces with 88 associated cases. So maybe it's increased adult activity. But some people are saying it is transmission in schools that is driving this surge. The reason they say that is because if we look at the older age groups getting sick, they slightly correlate with what they think would be the case level in children if detection had continued at the same level. So as we know, detection um, of kids, close contacts and isolation um, was slightly disbanded on September 27th. And exactly two weeks after that, we saw an upsurge in the parents' age group, the kids' age, the creche age and the age we assume would be grandparents. We didn't see the same surge in the 15 to 24 year olds who are typically young people off of college and have less contact with children. So some critics are saying this is children-driven transmission, classroom, school-driven transmission. Now, Neffet say that's not the case. They say COVID spreads like a fire and it can be dying in one area and then all of a sudden catch fire in another population group. So that's why they don't believe it's school-driven. But there's certainly a lot of critics out there who are looking at the timing of this, the age group it's affecting, and saying there has to be a correlation here, um, particularly two weeks after they they wound down the testing of close contacts in the classroom. Certainly an attractive explanation, but then it does make you wonder then why the number of cases in children of school age might have been going down for the first couple of weeks after they went back to the classroom. Um, at the risk of making you a hostage to fortune, have you done any extrapolations as to how much worse things might be able to get or what would you foresee in the, near, in the not-so-distant future? I think 
the big question is, if this is endemic, what does endemic look like? In the UK, they were warning people, you can have your Freedom Day, but we will have a winter wave. Um, the same week they were introducing vaccine certs, we were take, going to take them away and we were going to have our own Freedom Day equivalent this Friday, but we were being told cases would go down to potentially below 500 by Christmas. So certainly the modelling as it exists, I know it's being redone at the moment, but the way cases are going, if we increase social contacts this Friday, it's hard to see how they won't go up. Which makes you then wonder why they thought, Rachel, that it would be okay to announce October the 22nd as the date for relaxation, when they always thought, even under different models, that cases were going to be peaking around now anyway. Well, they thought cases would peak between 2,000 and 14,000 at the end of September. And then in every version from pessimistic to optimistic, we ended up on the optimistic end, um, they thought cases would fall. And I never fully understand what makes cases fall when they go that high, what makes them stop growing. It's possibly the belief in population immunity from vaccination, but there's so many unanswered questions about when herd immunity actually works, when it actually kicks in at 87.5% of adult or adult plus child population. We still don't know, and it hasn't necessarily been proven um, to be fully open with herd immunity anywhere else. So what if we're chasing a fool's gold with this bid to get everybody vaccinated, wagging our fingers at the unvaccinated? What if we need a vaccine plus strategy or what if we just need to accept high daily cases for the foreseeable and a winter wave? Either way, some clarity on what Neffet and the government think is going to happen, what endemic Ireland looks like would be really great. It'll be certainly interesting to see what Neffet's uh, models are like when they're produced tomorrow. Rachel Lavin, data journalist at The Business Post, thank you very much for joining us on The Sunlight Show this evening. Uh, Jack Chambers and Duncan Smith are still with me and I'm also joined now by Paul Cullen, who's the health editor of The Irish Times. Paul, when you hear Rachel's analysis like that, it's very difficult not to conclude that the idea of just abandoning contact tracing in schools to all intents and purposes was a little bit short-sighted. Well, I don't think you can uh, be quite so certain about that. Um, and it's, it's early days too, yeah. I mean, if you take the example of the case of the school down in Wexford, it mm. uh, was very, very telling and, and, and alarming, understandably, especially for people in the sector. Um, and it was also very interesting in the way that parents were tracing their own cases by using antigen testing, for example. Um, I mean, I know there's a school of thought saying that, yes, perhaps the, the children are silently bringing back this disease mm. into families and therefore exposing older people who are then turning up in hospital and maybe even in ICU. Um, but basically, I, it, it, that's to go back to a vector image of children that yeah. we, we, we try to dispense of early in the, in the uh, pandemic. And... I, I can't see how children are any worse than anybody else. Um, it, it, like, I mean, I think that the, vac the virus is an equal opportunities opportunist, mm. if, you, mm. if you like well, to put it that way. And they, you, there really isn't uh, enough evidence yet to say that. I mean, we've seen it in other countries as well that uh, schools have gone back and they've gone back and they, uh, they haven't ruffled uh, societal So, because you, you would look a lot more about the, the foreign methods of, of doing this yeah. and the ways of contact tracing work. Are we anyway an outlier when it comes to what we're doing in schools or, or is our approach to allowing healthy children to stay in the classroom the same as what other countries are doing? Well, there's a spectrum, I think, of, of, of uh, the way schools have been treated. But, you know, by and large, the broad um, evidence is that schools have not been drivers uh, and children have not been drivers of this infection. And I don't see, even with Delta, how that's any different.
Uh, are we a bit of an outlier when it comes to the use of antigen tests? Um, well, um, we probably are. Um, we, uh, we would argue, or the officials here would argue, that we've got better PCR testing. And mm. before that change was made in the schools, we had more PCR testing than anyone else. Probably not quite so true anymore. Um, but uh, some use is made of um, antigen, antigen testing across different countries in Europe. Mm. But it's often secondary to PCR, as it is with us. So we tend to make a lot of, of this. Now, I think you'd need a PhD to work out the pros and cons of the, the different ones. And the last time I sat down at some time to compare the two, I could see shortcomings in, in, in both strategies. And mm. it's a very fine... Because the antigen can, nowhere can, the near antigen can list some positives and a PCR can diagnose Absolutely. some people who are no longer infected. Yeah, and if you think, and I, I, in particularly the way I've seen in, in terms of my own existence yeah. and fr friends, you know, how it's applied, it can depend on how the test is done. If you're doing the test yourself, you mightn't be getting the results that... Mm. Uh, that you don't want to get. Sure. You can gain um, the system effectively. Jack Chambers, we heard from the Taoiseach today who said that he is a big supporter of antigen testing and it was something that was going to be discussed by government before they make tomorrow lunchtime's announcements. I think the report from Professor Mark Ferguson, the Chief Scientific Advisor, was handed over to the government in April and it advocated the use of antigen tests. And six months later, why only now are we getting around to thinking about it? I'll just say I, I absolutely value the role of antigen testing. I think they can uh, capture some of the disease profile that's not otherwise being found in the population. Uh, and they are being used in certain settings. So we, ha we are using it in uh, certain acute hospital settings at the moment, the HSCR. Um, <clears throat> in agriculture, around food processing, antigen testing has been used. It's also being used in certain universities um, by Minister Harris and the higher education setting. It's been used in residential care settings by the HSE in, in certain settings. And then some many employers are using it as well. And mm. Minister Martin, as you know, has conducted trials with antigen testing. Yeah. I, I think the public... But Mark Ferguson said that he's using it in the, in the own body I, that he works in, which I, is actually going beyond what the government has officially said. I think, and I, I, I accept people I think in the broader population would like to see antigen testing rolled out in a greater way um, and as you know Minister Donnelly to try and operationalise antigen testing established a group chaired by Professor Mary Horgan uh, and they have a report that's currently receiving consideration uh, by Minister Donnelly and I think if, if we have antigen testing broader than the settings I've set out. I think it's, as Paul said, it's important it's done in a structured way that actually, uh, where, that, that actually captures disease. Uh, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, I, I would personally like to see antigen testing uh, more widely used across society. Uh, and it, but I think it's important to do it in a way that's structured, that actually captures disease profile, okay. but also ensures PCR testing is maintained sure. as a gold standard. It's not going to be an immediate fix though. Uh, let's no. take it, it's going to make a month or two before anything, mm. any difference. Yeah. So in terms of the, issues that we feel we're facing in this week with terms of the number of people in hospital, antigen testing is not going to solve that no. for quite um, some time. Duncan, you were shaking your head there when you were talking about how long it's taken for government to roll this out. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, antigen. I mean, Professor Mark Ferguson, you said yourself, produced his report earlier this year. I mean, it was great to hear the teacher say he's a supporter of it and they say there's no more devout than the late convert, so hopefully it does roll this out very quickly. But it is being done. I spoke to an electrical engineer today, and on all the big major sites in this country, they have a very regimented uh, antigen testing uh, uh, regime up and running. So it is out there. People need to be trusted uh, in terms of taking it and how to use it. There are, the, I think there was an assumption of bad faith by some on effort in relation to antigen testing, that people would somehow use it in order to get around restrictions, which I think was totally unfair and inaccurate. I think the proof has been the opposite. Uh, there 
there are also, like, the first time I took an antigen test, I suppose I did have a bit of a query as to was I doing it right. But, you know, uh, there are very good instructional videos. I mean, we're being recommended to look at the NHS instructional video, uh, for example. Um, and it is, it, is, it is relatively simple to do. And as Professor Ferguson says, it's just another tool in our toolkit. It's, it's not going to solve everything. It's not a silver bullet, well, but it's another tool in our if, toolkit. If it was one possible tool, by the way, we're getting loads of tweets in the hashtag is tonight BMTV, and I'll try to get to some of them in just a second. I don't mean to hang everything on schools, Jack, but again, it seems like an, an obvious example where if you don't want to have to go through the full rigours of contact tracing for every child, and if you don't want to keep an ostensibly healthy child out of a classroom, you could have a programme of antigen testing, you could evaluate whether the child is infectious and poses a risk to anyone else, and then you could allow the classroom to flourish without having any unnecessary people being removed. It seems like the perfect environment. Why don't we do it? Well, that's why we... we Minister Donnelly is considering that report from Professor Mary Horgan about how, how you broaden the use of antigen testing in other settings, and we are doing it. But it's 14 uh, months after the first reopening of schools, Jack. We've had this testing for a while. It's been an option available to us. But I think you're, you're pointing to schools, but if you look at the, the broad data on schools, as, as was mentioned earlier on, uh, there, there, ha there hasn't been a big surge in cases uh, since the schools reopened. Uh, and there's, we take the guidance around testing and around the contact tracing structures uh, from public health, and they, they guide with the HSPC. Mm. They guide the, uh, the, the methods in which, which are implemented when it comes to both testing and contact tracing, and government implements the expert advice, mm. which, which is a rounded scientific opinion from others. As I've said, like others on the panel, I support antigen testing. I would like to see it uh, uh, broadened across society, but it has to be done in a, in a structured way uh, that, that captures the additional disease burden in our communities. Um, a few of the tweets. Uh, one tweeter says, huge mistake. If nightclubs are opened, hospitals will be overrun before Christmas. Clueless and dangerous. Someone else says that you're aware kids getting COVID in school then bring it home and into the wider community so the cases keep spreading and hospital numbers increase, making the similar argument as you've already heard. Someone else says it's worrying how many venues no longer ask for vaccine certs, which is a point about enforcement of the rules that are there. Um, Paul Cullen, when you look at some of the, the figures that the HSE is producing and you look at intensive care units nationwide being close to full and hospitals, as you heard Philney Hay earlier on saying, already overcrowded, it makes you think that if we're going to ever live with COVID as an endemic thing that doesn't mm. require an emergency response, that the hospital system is just going to have to be much bigger than it currently is. And that takes resources and money. Sure, and, and, and those resources are on the way. Um, money has been thrown at health in the last two budgets. Um, you know, I think um, there is clearly a dis level of dysfunction in the health system in terms of entry to the health system that would exist even without COVID. Mm. I think we have to remember, we have a tendency, people who come back from other countries say, why are we always talking about COVID in this country? Maybe, are things worse here? On balance, some ways they are, in some ways they're not, right? But we have a tendency to catastrophize, uh, uh, perhaps. And we have to remember, health systems are for treating sick people. So COVID is a disease. We have a lot of people, okay, who've, who've got it, but we've just got to deal with it just as we deal with bad flu seasons. So that has to be the context, albeit that you hear what the union representatives are saying. Um, but when you look at the hospitals that are having the most difficulty with COVID, they're the same ones who have the most difficulty with other issues. Um, Limerick comes to mind, for example. Okay. Uh, and, and therefore, you're right, um, COVID tells you, you know, multi-bed wards, not a good idea. Yeah. Lots of other things that have to be changed. Okay. The question is, when is that going to happen? Of yeah. And it's We're going getting to be, impatient for and have to be a long old process. Hearing a lot of talk about uh, Duncan, you're the, the um, shadow spokesperson on health. If you were at the cabinet table tomorrow and you had a decision between allowing some of those sectors to reopen versus what you heard from Phil Nee, hey, hospitals can't afford any more of a burden, where would you fall down? Uh, 
I listened to the advice on Nefid and Nyack, but what's crucial to us is to ensure that our hospitals are functioning, they're not going to be overwhelmed. And, and that people aren't. Keep some sectors uh, shut. If so, but, but you know, uh, we, we, in terms of what we're hearing tonight, is uh, in terms of what's coming from Nefid, that we, well, we may be able to continue reopening, social distancing, mask wearing, uh, and all to continue. And, and, and you know, that's a way mm. of moving forward, and, and that's fine. If it was a stark choice, uh, we should always look to protect the most vulnerable okay. and the sickest in this country. And that uh, should be the bottom line. We will leave it there. My thanks to my panel. Lots more after this break. We'll be looking at how a global supply chain crisis could affect your Christmas shopping here in Ireland. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, a series of separate events are causing havoc around the world in the supply chain of goods and they're threatening the supply of products in the run-up to Christmas here. Now, these are pictures from Los Angeles port last week. Thousands upon thousands of crates piled up in a supply bottleneck. But while the problems are being felt halfway around the world, they are also being felt right here in Ireland. Let's bring in Alan Holland. He's the CEO of Keelvar Systems. Alan, thanks for speaking to us. Can you give us an overview of the different factors that are contributing to these supply bottlenecks? Yes, there's been a, a confluence of multiple factors affecting global supply chains. And in particular, the ocean freight transportation sector has been hit with several issues in the last 15, 16 months. And things started, of course, with the pandemic. And we had a shock on the demand side. Demand plummeted and then surged. And the ocean freight supply chain simply isn't designed for those type of changes in uh, demands, demand level, levels. And are we still seeing then some other knock-on effects from the blockage of the Suez Canal a little while back as well? Yes, that contributed to further disruptions. When that occurred, you had uh, ocean carriers switching the locations of sh ships. They're moving to trans-Pacific lanes instead of serving Europe. So that's affecting European supply chains. And we see it uh, the pictures from LA show what it what has led to on the west coast of the US too. So there's been an increase in capacity moving goods into America, but there hasn't been an increase in capacity in the ports to deal with the influx of goods. So then you have things just piling up in ports waiting to be housed one way or another? Exactly, yes. So uh, you suddenly had an imbalance between the uh, capacity, uh, transport, transportation capacity across the Pacific with the capacity to actually deal with those boxes as they arrive in Long Beach and LA and uh, their ability to move them onto rail cars or have trucks uh, take them to eastbound or to Chicago or eastbound in the US. Okay, you're involved in offering intelligent planning systems to help people figure out what is the most efficient way to get their stuff from A to B. How affected is Ireland by this and does Brexit exacerbate any effects that we're likely to have? Uh, indeed, Ireland is, I suppose, very much at the end of the supply chain. So when goods are coming from Asia, they tend to come to the ports of Bremerhaven and or Rotterdam, and then they move onwards to Ireland. Uh, so we see the effects. It can be several weeks after something happens in a global supply chain, like a, a port closure in China or the ever given in the Suez Canal. It can take several weeks or months for things to filter through, but they do hit us. And because we're at the end of the supply 
supply chain, uh, sometimes goods just may not get onto our shelves and are consumed elsewhere. Does that mean then, Alan, that we have an inevitability, that there's nothing we can do to stop some of those knock-on effects from pinching here at Christmas? Because if it takes that long for things to rectify themselves after a closure, then it seems like we're, we're already a little bit up the creek. Yeah, we may be goosed in terms of some products that, uh, for whom ocean freight transportation is the only option. But there are others where air freight may be an alternative. So some goods, especially electronic products or more valuable products, may still get to our stores. But those that are dependent on, you know, on ocean carriers, like uh, things like furniture or toys and, and voluminous products, just may not get to our shops in time. So time to start the Christmas shopping then now. Alan Holland, CEO of Kilvar, thanks very much for joining us this evening on The Tonight Show. Thank you. Jack Chambers and Duncan Smith are still with me in studio. Jack, I don't mean to say that you can solve all of the world's problems, but what can the Irish government do at least or try to do to try and keep things moving? Well, we're obviously as part of the EU-wide system. Uh, we have, we've got good, good, good connections with Europe and we've obviously diversified our connection with Europe when it came to Brexit, so better connections with France uh, and other countries. But I think Alan has set out very well the difficulty that we're seeing across every country uh, in the world that, that's on the end of a supply chain where you've got increased demand, you've got disruption around supply and production, and then you've got increased uh, difficulties around capacity and then how they, how each, each uh, for example, the Suez Canal, each, you know, each disruption has a knock-on effect for months mm. uh, and obviously COVID exacerbating that. I think it's important though to take it in context, Retail Ireland, who uh, obviously represent a lot of the retailers um, and, and th their assessment of it as they're coming up to Christmas was that there may be particular items that are, that are affected, but it won't be across the board. So the majority of items that people will, will hope to have uh, will still be here uh, for Christmas, but there, there obviously will be individual difficulties for, for certain items and that's here and everywhere across Europe. But I think being part of the EU and being part of that uh, trading system uh, will ensure that we, we at least we have uh, a, a better degree of certainty. Uh, Duncan, I know you represent an airport constituency, so I suppose it's always a, an ill wind that doesn't blow wind for some good sector yeah. because I guess air travel is, is a little less disrupted by this. Is there any red tape that could be removed that would make things a little bit more easier or is this just one of those things that you just have to throw your hat at? Uh, there are some issues in relation to uh, uh, duty taxes and that that maybe can be looked at by the department, but you know this is a multifactorial global crisis that's going to affect everyone, including Santa Claus, by the sounds of it. So uh, I think people are going to need to plan better. We need to look to maybe uh, where are what the goods we're buying are from, and maybe look to the shop in lo uh, shop local, mm. source local, uh, and uh, but overall this shows just how fragile the global capitalist system is in terms of uh, how how it's set up because it's 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 absolutely shut down now uh, on the basis of a few a tariff war between the US and China, a block ship in the Suez Canal, and then we have but the pandemic. If it's so, the global capitalist no, no, system, then that, it, how, how better do you organise things so that this doesn't happen in the future? We, we need to look at maybe how we can incentivize the manufacturing sector. That's not going to happen this Christmas or next Christmas, but maybe we need to, we need to look at medium long-term economic planning. So they're the real kind of long-term things we need to look at to try and mitigate something like this happening again. But for the short term, we're, we have a major problem. There's queues not just to get on ships, there's queues to book containers. That's how bad things are. Containers that would have cost $1,500 uh, in, in Singapore last year are costing $18,000 now. Who's going to ultimately pay for that? The people of Ireland are uh, in, in a winter that's going to see rising energy prices and a lot of other costs. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, a very positive outlook for uh, people in Ireland uh, coming up to Christmas. Um, Jack, that was a very alarming disclosure from Duncan that even uh, Santa Claus is going to be affected by these supply chain issues. Is there anything at all the government can do in short term to try and uh, ease some of these problems? 
Well, unfortunately, as, as, we, as we know, it is a, it is a, a global uh, supply chain difficulty. I think it's important though people are reassured by what Retail Ireland have said, who uh, give people that degree of confidence and certainty that it won't be across the board. It may be for individual items and it's best to check with the local retailer about whether there is a, a difficulty in sourcing a particular product, but where uh, people plan uh, really well and, uh, and I think that's, that's important to take into context. Exactly. Um, Jack Chambers, Duncan Smith, thank you both very much for joining me this evening. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast wherever you get your audio. And our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. There's also likely to be a special sometime around lunchtime tomorrow when we'll hear the latest on those COVID restrictions. We'll see you then from all of the late, time, late night team here tonight. Good night. Thanks for watching and do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.